Great to have you here for worship this morning. It's also great to sit where I sit and watch Tim. <laughs> I thought he was coming out of his seat at that choir number. The music's been great today. Yeah. You, you might have even been a soprano today. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are a lot of texts to pick for um, this Sunday morning. We're in the middle of a series on what it means to live a transformed life in Jesus. In other words, once he saves us, what does he make us into? And here we're in uh, a section called Power, looking at the power of the resurrection. And there is a great example of that power here in today's text in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. That's page 1047 in the Bibles that uh, are in front of you in the pews. Now that same day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And do you not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us. For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen, and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what he had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, its power. It's poignancy in our lives. 
We thank you that you give us this opportunity on this resurrection day to come and focus on this powerful text. Lord, we pray that we might devote ourselves to the study of your word, not just here today, but this week as the groves begin and throughout our lives. For Lord, we know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing your word. And so we ask you to grow our faith today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, yesterday I had an experience I haven't had before. Oh, in part I've had the experience. Saturday mornings, once the snow lifts, it's wedding time. <laughs> but this particular Saturday morning, or Saturday afternoon, I had the opportunity to witness the bride coming for her groom on the back of a Harley Davidson. It was wonderful, I want you to know. Her dress was white before she got on and when she got off, and it was good. Reminded me of a story my friend tells of a time when he uh, had an experience that involved motorcycles. He says this, one of my favorite sounds in the morning is a motorcycle. Now, when I first read that, I thought, what are you, crazy? I've got friends in the congregation with motorcycles, and I'm consistently asking them, why do they have to be so loud? He said, you know, it wasn't always that way for me. I didn't always love motorcycles in the morning. I thought they were loud and obnoxious. But now, the reason I really didn't like them was not their sound but because they signaled to me leaving. He said a few years ago he was at his desk and he heard a motorcycle outside of his office. Within a couple of minutes a guy appeared in his doorway and he said, I just wanted to let you know that I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. My friend said I was stunned. He was on the staff of a large ministry in Fort Lauderdale. It was a ministry that was, was uh, encouraging people with addictions to be free. It was a place of strict rules and intense care, and now my friend, this man, was throwing it all away. He said to me, the only reason I'm here is so that you hear it from me and not from somebody else. I'm leaving, I'm heading to Key West, I'm going there to sin. And if there is a God, he's going to have to bring me back. And if there isn't a God, I won't be back and you'll never see me again. He said, I started to say something. He said, shut up. I don't want to hear anything from you. I know what you're going to say. Don't even waste your breath. With that, he turned, walked outside, got on the back of his Harley, and headed south to, to Key West. I said, my friend said every day for three months I'd pray for him. Sometimes when I least expected it, tears would well up as I thought of him. And then one morning I'm sitting at my desk and all of at once I hear a motorcycle outside my office window. I run out and there he is with a wide grin on his face. And when I get close enough for me to hear him over the roar of the motorcycle, he said, I'm back. 
I just thought you'd want to know there is a God after all. You know, 700 years before the resurrection, God came to his people, a people he had nurtured, people he had given birth to, people he had rescued, and he comes to them 700 years before Jesus, and he says to them, I've got two questions for you. You see, his people were in the midst of a Key West experience. He doesn't give them a lecture. He doesn't throw his law at them. He doesn't focus on their infractions. Instead, he asks two questions. What have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? The Bible says, when they say nothing, God continues. I have shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with me. You know, throughout all of human history, that is the primary question that God asks his people. Are you walking with me? Now think of these two guys in this text. They're not walking with him, they're walking away from him. Based on all of the circumstantial evidence, they should have walked toward him, but instead they're walking away from him. Think of the reports they've received. The women have come and said, we've spoken to angels, he's no longer there, he's alive. But instead of investigating, instead of sticking together with their brothers and sisters, they choose to leave the city of Jerusalem and head seven miles west toward the city of Emmaus. You think about the contrast here. Before the sun comes up, women leave the shelter of their lodging and they head to the tomb. And in doing so, they walk right toward Jesus. But these men, in the full daylight of the resurrection, they don't walk toward Jesus. They walk away from him. Not long ago, I got a letter from a friend who said this, you know, to be honest, I've walked with Jesus for a number of years now, but to be frank with you, it's been a bit of a zigzag. <laughs> now, I love the honesty of that. Robert Robinson would know all about it. At age 14, his mother sent him to London to become a barber. There he meets a couple of friends. They spend three years in complete debauchery. And one day they decide to go to hear a man named George Whitfield preach. They're there to scoff. But by the end of his message, Robert is converted. He leaves the barber chair, he goes to school, and he ends up in a pulpit. He preaches the gospel. He writes books. He even authors some hymns. A famous one that most of you know, 
Come thou fount of every blessing. And yet years later, he leaves the ministry, begins to dabble in other religious systems. He seeks to drown his sorrows in alcohol. One day he decides traveling is what he needs. He needs to get away. It was before Southwest, and yet he had to get away. One day, the story is told, he's on a stagecoach. He's riding along with a woman who's a complete stranger, and she is humming a hymn. And she looks up from her humming and sees that he's staring her in the eyes. And she said, do you know this hymn? He said, do I know it? I wrote it! And I'd give a thousand lifetimes to know the joy that I knew when I wrote that hymn. You see, he knew what it was like to walk away. Like that man in Florida. Like these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He knew what it was like to zigzag. But you know something, ladies and gentlemen? That is never the end of the story for those who know Christ. For those the Lord has redeemed, that's never the end of the story, and the resurrection proves it. So let's dig into this text. First of all, notice in verse 15, the direction. <clears throat> As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside of them. Did you ever hear about the woman who <clears throat> had a toddler? And she was trying for the umpteenth time to get him to stay in bed, and he wouldn't. Finally, she says to him, you stay in this bed. I'm going downstairs to read. I don't want to hear another word from you. She goes downstairs, picks up the book, starts into the first page. Mama! She is tired of walking the steps. So she says, listen. If I hear Mama one more time out of you, I'm going to come up there and tan your hide. She picks up the book and starts reading, gets to the second page. Two minutes later, he says, Mrs. Smith? Could I get a drink of water? Now you file that under persistence. But have you ever thought about God in terms of persistence? The Bible says in the first couple of pages, a man named Adam and Eve, they sin, and they hide in the trees. Who gets them out of the trees? The Bible says there's a man by the name of Elijah God calls as a prophet. He gains a great victory over the enemies of God and Israel, and yet he's fearful of a king and his wife. And so he cowers in the corner of the desert. Who finds him? God calls a man, Hosea, to, to marry a prostitute. And she continues to leave her husband and go after other men. And each time God says to his prophet Hosea, Go get her. Bring her back. 
The Bible says one day, one night, the disciples are in a storm-tossed boat on the Sea of Galilee. Many of them know that sea well, and yet they're scared to death. Who is it who comes to them to rescue them? The Bible says when the news of the resurrection makes its way to the disciples, Thomas hears it and disbelieves. Who is it who comes to Thomas and says, Here, put your finger in the nail prints. The Bible says when Mary is all alone at the empty tomb, someone comes to find her. She thinks it's the gardener, but it isn't. The Bible says days after, Peter has denied Jesus three times with all of the guilt and all of the shame. Someone comes to find him. Who is that someone? The answer to all of those questions is God. God is relentless with his people. Years ago, there was an evangelistic campaign. You may know the bumper sticker, I found it. It meant... New life in Christ. I found new life in Christ. And while thousands came to know Christ through that campaign, it was terrible theology. Because the fact is, they didn't find Christ. He found them. You think about it. Every other religious system in the world when you boil it down to its baseline, is this. You must find God on your own. Some say you do it through meditation. Others say you do it through acts of obedience. Others say you get a number of shots at it through reincarnation. Others say you eat chocolate. There's only one religion one faith in this world that says the opposite, that tells you the truth, unless God finds you, you won't be found. You know what every other religious system says? Once you find God, however they define God, if you walk away, it's over for you. And that stands to reason. If you've got to find God then you have to stay found. And if you walk away, then there is no hope. But ladies and gentlemen, we don't understand that kind of religion. We understand it. But Jesus is the only one who comes and finds his own. And even when you walk away, you're still his. And these men prove it. Second, notice the deductions. Look at verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Somebody has said this, when you're in charge, you should ponder. When you're in trouble, delegate. When you're in doubt, mumble. And that's exactly what these guys are doing. They're mumbling. Look what Jesus says to him. What they say to Jesus. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? And do you not know the things that have happened there in these days? Imagine asking Jesus that. 
He said, but they didn't know it was him. That's one of the only things they think they don't know. <laughs> and notice in the midst of their ignorance, Jesus doesn't challenge them. He doesn't attack their conclusions. He acts like his father. He simply asks a question, what things? What things? And then the mumbling begins in earnest. Look what they say. About Jesus the prophet. Would you be surprised to know that Jesus never called himself a prophet? He never refers to himself as a prophet. Days earlier, these men had called Jesus their Lord, but now he's a prophet. They say a prophet, powerful in word and deed. Yes, so powerful that you, that you can ignore everything he's ever said. And then they say, we hope that he would be the one to redeem Israel, but now it's the third day. The third day. That's exactly the length of time Jesus said it would take for him to rise from the dead. You see, they have all kinds of deductions, but no answers. They're just like Adam in the garden. They're just like Moses at the burning bush. They're just like the woman at the well. That's the way it always is with us when we walk away. We've got a lot of deductions, but so few answers. And then third, notice the delusion. Look at verses 25 and 27. How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning him. Now that translation softens what Jesus literally says. You know what he says? He doesn't say how foolish you are. He says, you fools. It's the only time he uses the word to describe someone. In Matthew 5, he says, whoever says to his brother, you fool, is in danger of hell fire. But the word he uses there is moros, from which we get the word moron. But Jesus isn't saying to these guys, you morons. He's using a different word. The only time he uses it, it's a word that means one who follows his feelings. It's exactly the same word Paul uses when he addresses the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In other words, you're following your feelings. Now notice Jesus analyzes their problem perfectly. Their problem is not with the facts. Their problem is with their feelings. They feel betrayed. They feel hopeless. They feel unloved. They feel insignificant. And so Jesus comes to them in the midst of those feelings and notice what he does. Beginning with Moses, he explains all that the scriptures say about him. See, he doesn't come to them on a feelings level. He comes and he addresses truth to them. The word explain literally means to thoroughly translate, to interpret with clarity. You see, what Jesus does with these two men is exactly what he does with all of us when we wander away. 
When he comes to us, he takes us back to the truth of his word. And there he explains everything that we need to begin to walk with him again. And then fourth and finally, notice the determination, verse 28. As they approached the village, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. Now think of the day Jesus has had. I mean, think of the weekend Jesus has had. A few years ago on this Sunday, I preached about what Jesus did on Saturday. It's something that a lot of Christians don't know or appreciate. And when I got finished preaching about all that Jesus did from Friday all the way to Sunday morning, a guy came out and he said, I had no idea. Boy, Jesus was a busy guy. You bet he was busy. <laughs> but notice he's not too busy to stay with them. They urge him to stay. Why? They don't even know who he is. Why do they urge him to stay? The answer is they're obeying the law. The law of Israel was clear. At nighttime, if you saw a stranger on the road, you were obligated to invite him in. It was dangerous on the road at night. But notice it's not the law that causes Jesus to come inside. It's grace. To them, he's a stranger. To him, they're his own flesh and blood. Look at what he does. They sit at table. He picks the bread up and he breaks it just like he did Thursday night. And here in this town named Emmaus, which means healing pools, Jesus heals them by taking them all the way back to the cross and showing them everything that he's done to fulfill the scriptures. You see, that's what Jesus always does when he comes to his wandering sheep. He always takes us back to who he is and what he's done. And notice what happens when they get it. Notice what happens when they, they see Jesus for who he is. He disappears. Why? The same reason he wouldn't let Mary hold on to him. So that they might leave their wanderings and return to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now think of it. It's nighttime. It's dangerous on the road. But ladies and gentlemen, it's far less dangerous on the road than being all alone, walking in darkness. You see, their desire is to get back into the light, get back into the company of other believers. That's why that guy came back from Key West. That's why he drove up to my friend's office and said, I thought you want to know, there is a God. And I'm back. Robert Robinson wrote this, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the condition of every believer's heart, prone to wander. And to deny that fact is to lie. But it's not a normal lie, it's a damnable lie, because it's a lie that perverts the gospel and enslaves men and women to their own works, their own efforts to justify themselves by keeping the law. 
I can't believe how it's so easy for us to fall into that Galatian trap. We're saved by grace, but in order to stay in grace, you've got to work it out. It's up to you. No, it isn't. If you couldn't save yourself before you knew Christ, you can't keep yourself saved either. It's all up to him. 500 years ago, when Martin Luther was preaching in Wittenberg, Germany, the result of his preaching, the gospel, was that the town went crazy. <laughs> As a result of rediscovering the gospel, the doctrine of grace, that men and women for the first time in their lives, they began to understand what it means to know that Jesus paid it all. As Luther began to teach the doctrines of grace, how it's all God's action, and we simply respond, they began to take hold of it. And suddenly a lot of weird behavior began in that town. People began to send their brains out. Because they came to understand, if Christ saves me through faith, and this is not of myself, it's a gift of God, then it really doesn't matter how I live. If you're saved by the finished work of Christ and not by your own works of penance or repentance, you can go wild. And some did. They went crazy. And the more Luther watched this, the more depressed he got. Because he knew that the goal of the gospel, the end result of the gospel, is not bondage in sin, it's, it's freedom from sin. One day a friend came to Luther and said, you know, if you had to do it all over again, would you preach the same thing? <laughs> Luther turned to him and said, yes. I'd preach the same gospel all over again because it's better for them not to know the gospel and not live it than to not know the gospel at all. You know why Luther could say that? The same reason Paul says it. The same reason the Emmaus Road proves it. Because Luther understood the power of the resurrection. He knew that when you truly receive the grace of God through faith in Christ, even if you walk away, you'll always come back. And when you come back, it will be as though you never left. You know why? Because God never loses his children. And the resurrection proves that. Robinson understood it when he walked with Christ. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. How does the Lord seal our hearts? The same way he did with those two men on the road to Emmaus. He comes and finds us. He takes us back to what He's done for us on the cross. He opens our eyes to His own identity. And then He places in our heart a desire to go and be with the people of God in a fellowship of zigzaggers, in a fellowship of grace. And every transformed life knows that. That's the power of the gospel. 
the power of the resurrection. <laughs> Years ago, a good friend of mine who knows Christ, who loves Christ, who went, got into scripture study intently, I don't see him for a few weeks, and then a few months. I make inquiry every once in a while with him. Finally, one day, I said, I'm going to come over to your house tonight, okay? And we're sitting around the fire, just he and me. I said, where have you been? He said, on sabbatical. On sabbatical. He said, yeah, I've just taken sabbatical. Has the Lord failed you? Never. Have the people of God failed you? Sometimes. So you're judging him by us? Guess I have. You ready to come back? Yes, I am. If you're his, he'll never let you go. If you're his, he'll give you the desire to come back to a place of grace. May we, as the people of God, be that kind of place. It's Easter. Resurrection Sunday. Can you think of a better time to think about that? Amen.